0: Eureka Springs. It's a quaint Victorian village tucked away in the Ozark Mountains of northern Arkansas. On the surface, this little tourist town draws thousands of visitors to its little boutique shops and -and mom-and-pop restaurants, but the underbelly of this town is full of supernatural creatures the normal folk don't notice. I've been away for a couple years, and in that time, someone has started killing off the town's witches. The true consequences for this horrible series of crimes is that the town's magical energy that radiates from the springs below are getting out of control without a solid number of witches to keep it in balance. Werewolves are changing without the full moon, vampires are thirstier than ever before, gnomes are growing to twice their normal height, and I'm pretty sure last night I saw a miniature black hole appear in a back alley for a split second, sucking up all the trash cans. The nearby businesses were pretty mad. So I'm racing to find the culprit before they kill the last witches, and the town really gets unhinged. My name is Vincent Van Getty. By day, I'm a newspaper reporter for the Lovely County Record. By night, I'm a paranormal investigator working to track down this killer. My only help is a box of ten cassette tapes that mysteriously showed up on my doorstep, each with a different clue. It's season two of Ozark Whispers, so if you're just getting started, go back and listen to season one first. These new episodes will be here when you get back. Eureka Springs being where it is sees a lot of tourists. What can we say? Our little village is a tourist town. The majority of our economy is based on other people coming here, eating in our restaurants, staying in our hotels, and moving on. We only have a little over 2,000 people who call this their permanent home, and that includes us special folks that go bump in the night. Perhaps the largest group of people that make their way through Eureka Springs are the bikers. You can't go more than an hour without hearing a chopper blow through town. All of Northwest Arkansas's Windy Mountain Roads are perfect for riding, and millions make their way through the region every year to take advantage of that, especially in the fall during the changing of the leaves. We have a number of biker bars here in Eureka that cater to them, and most don't cause trouble. In the last weekend of September, Eureka sees the most bikers as they come to town for the annual Bikes, Blues, and Biscuits Festival. Thousands of riders on their steel horses descend upon Fayetteville, a college town about an hour west of here, where the festival is actually held but many ride over here to Eureka and back making a loop. It's a fact of life, love em or hate them. Most of the supernatural community here keep their mouths shut about the festival because we realize we're tolerated to a great extent, so we should probably return the tolerance when it comes to others. If the town can tolerate a roaming wolf pack, packs of bikers shouldn't be an issue. So you can imagine how shot my nerves were when a vampire was found dead in a very public area at the height of the festival. With all the bikers in town, we didn't need this. Not that we needed it when the bikers were gone, either, but this was terrible timing. My police scanner started going nuts around 5.30 a.m. before the sun was even up. A body had been found on the busiest day of the festival, when Eureka Springs hosted its annual biscuit-eating competition, set to kick off at 9 a.m. this morning. So, I rushed down to a pull-off area for boaters by a bridge over by the Kings River between here and Berryville. I arrived to find members of the Sheriff's office taping off the underside of the bridge area. They let me through since I had my camera and I walked under the bridge. Sheriff was pretty confused about the situation, but he didn't mess with me as I looked over the body. We'd worked together enough in my time here with the paper that he knew I wasn't going to cause trouble. What I saw before me was a vampire pinned to one of the concrete support beams under the bridge. He was pinned through the heart by a rather thick wooden stake. The ground underneath him was still dripping with black blood, which confused the sheriff even more. Never seen a man with black blood before, the sheriff said, and I remained silent. That's because you've never seen a vampire bleed before, I could have told him. Their blood turns black upon joining the undead. This particular vampire was a local night fisherman named Nick Sage. He'd only recently been turned and was only around 19 years old. But he'd moved here when he was 5 with his father, another vampire who did a local construction work. Turns out that supernatural strength makes for a great career in construction. Why hire a crew of several men when you had all the strength yourself? While the sheriff's biggest question was the black blood, mine was twofold. A, who had the strength to kill a vampire, and B, who had the strength to drive a piece of wood through a concrete barrier? The sheriff asked if I'd be willing to keep this under wraps until the contest was over and a few more hundred souls cleared out of town, but I told him in all likelihood one of the television stations in Springfield or Fayetteville had heard this go over the scanner and wasn't too far behind me. Sure, I I could stay silent, but I have no control over the other reporters. At this, he swore several more times. I wanted to tell him it'd be okay, because soon I'd call this into the rangers, and they'd send Arkansas's ranger up here disguised as a member of state police to assume control of the investigation. Then he wouldn't have to worry about this anymore. But it would be a few hours until she could make it up here, and I intended to have this figured out before that if possible. My only clue as to who did this? Motorcycle tracks that led down under the bridge. But there were no footprints, so whoever did this rode down, got off the bike without making footprints, and stabbed Nick quickly without a struggle. They'd have to have been fast and strong. Vampires aren't easy to kill. It's not like you see on the fictional TV shows. Even a highly trained ranger can only take one, maybe two at a time, and that's if they're extremely skilled and top of their crop. Whoever did this wasn't human. The question to figure out was could this be an isolated incident, or some monster in town hunting down vampires? The first person to help me answer that question would be Nick's father. I rode over to his construction office in Berryville and found Nick's father Rob welding some pipe... The sun still wasn't up yet, but I could tell Rob was about to call it a day, or a night, however a vampire looked at this. I climbed out of my car, heart-heavy at having to deliver the news, and walked over to Rob. He waved and took off his welding mask. Rob was a strong soul who mostly kept to himself. He raised his son to be a respectable young vampire, and the two were generally viewed as hard-working souls in both the supernatural community and the human community of Eureka Springs. That's why it paid me to have to deliver this news. But I needed answers fast, and Rob likely had one or two of them. When I informed Rob of his son's murder, he launched into a fit of rage and demanded to know who was responsible. Understandable. Everyone in the supernatural community around here knew I had a habit of solving paranormal mysteries, so Rob grabbed the scruff of my jacket and demanded to know who was responsible. His strength was terrifying, and I'd been on the receiving end of a vampire beating more than once. His eyes were turning solid black, and the veins under his eyes were twitching. I shouted that I didn't know who did it, but I would find them. Rob then came to his senses and lowered me to the ground. As I caught my breath and my pulse dropped back down to a normal human range, Rob's eyes returned to normal as he sank to his knees in the gravel and sobbed. After a few minutes, I saw the sun starting to peek over some trees and told Rob we needed to head inside. I almost had to drag him inside his little construction trailer. He just kept saying, He's my boy, Vincent, and yeah, I'm not gonna lie, it sucked to hear that. Vampires are sterile, so it wasn't like Rob was ever going to have another child. Nick had been bored before Rob was turned, and he'd only turned his son earlier this year after they agreed on it. I put on a pot of coffee and mixed in some blood I found in a blood bag at the back of Rob's mini-fridge, probably at the hands of Red Cross people he'd stole from. Rob took a cup and finally calmed down a little. We got to talking, and I asked him if he had any idea who would want to hurt his son, or if he had any enemies. I explained the motorcycle tracks had been found nearby, and suddenly Rob wanted to know if a biker from out of town had done this. I told him that was unlikely because there weren't any footprints. Rob sat down in his rolly chair and thought for a moment. Nick had no enemies. Except for his girlfriend's father, Tony Polano. I sighed because that made no sense. Tony was a human, and he wasn't a biker. And though he did hate Nick... I resolved to have a chat with him. Now that the sun was up, Rob was confined to his trailer for the time being. That gave me a head start before he tried any vigilante justice. Around 8 AM, I was sitting in Tony's driveway thinking. Tony ran a little museum of Native American history here in Eureka Springs, and he'd crossed paths with me before. You see, Tony is one of the few humans who knows about the supernatural community here in town, and while he mostly keeps to himself, He became an overprotective father when he learned his daughter, Teo, was dating a vampire, Nick. Tony isn't exactly supportive of the supernatural community here in Eureka. He wishes we'd all scram. And sure, a guy like that was bound to get upset when his daughter came home with a vampire, even one who only fed on fish blood. I knocked on the door, and Tony answered in a stylish bathrobe with goldfish on it. I told him about Nick's death, and all he did was laugh. What a cruel man. Even if Nick was a vampire, he was also Rob's son. Tony should have at the very least respected that. And when I brought this up, Tony told me he'd also recently lost a child. He told me Nick had murdered his daughter and gotten away with it because he was a vampire, and none of the local authorities wanted to arrest him. I sighed because I knew the real truth here, as did Nick and Rob. The truth was, in his later years, Tony had grown to be a rather hateful man. He hated this town, he hated the supernatural community in this town, And he hated the fact that he didn't have enough money to leave this town. I think things hit a tipping point when he tried to pick a fight with Nick one night, and the vampire easily dispatched him. Being emasculated in a way before his daughter, whose respect for him shrank by the day, pushed him over the edge. And that was the final straw for Taya. She decided to leave one night without telling her old man. If there was a choice to be made between Nick and her father, she chose Nick, for better or for worse. Taya had moved up to Springfield and started school there. Of course, Tony went even further down the rabbit hole if that was possible. He accused Nick of kidnapping and murdering her without any evidence, and he even hired me to track his daughter's body down. I didn't really buy that Nick had killed Taya at the time, but I could use the extra money, so I took the job. It took a week, but I eventually tracked Taya down to Springfield where she begged me not to tell her father where she was, no matter how upset he got. She had effectively got him out of her life, and was planning on marrying Nick at the end of the year to start a new chapter of their lives. Nick was working with his father and saving up money to move up to Springfield with her. And then it got staked at the bottom of a bridge. When I learned where Teo was, I returned and refunded Tony's money, saying I had been unable to find what he wanted. That was my half-truth of the day. I decided this family squabble wasn't my business and ducked out as gracefully as I could. Fast forward to now, and I had a murder. A suspect that made no sense because he was neither strong enough nor biker enough to fit the description and a biscuit eating contest that would draw hundreds of bikers into our town in the middle of a fresh murder investigation. I needed to wrap this up quick and ruling Tony out fast would help me accomplish that. Tony assured me it wasn't him, but he was glad Nick was dead. This made my blood boil and I thought about telling him where Teo was and that she would be devastated when her boyfriend's death came to light. But I kept my cool, exhaled, and thanked him for his time. As I walked away, Tony warned me to put as much distance between myself and those supernatural crazies as I could. You're human, Tony said. Stick with your own kind. I reminded him, without my witch of a landlady, I had nowhere else to live, and started walking back down to the driveway. I started my car and decided to check out Tony's Museum of Native American History. I obviously couldn't search his house for clues since he was still there, but the museum didn't open for another hour or two. I pulled up to the museum across the street from Eureka Springs High School and made my way around back. At the back doors, I pulled out a nice little trinket I'd won in the Miles poker game with the Ozark werewolf pack when they drove through town. You see, they're disguised as bikers themselves when they're in human form, and they roam the Ozarks. They happened to be driving through just before Bikes, Blues, and Biscuits started, and we stayed up a couple nights, playing poker for a little supernatural knickknacks. They presented me with a skeleton key when I won, one literally made of coyote bone that had been enchanted by a witch to open any normal lock. I loved this thing. Sliding it slowly into the lock of the back French doors of the museum, it reconfigured itself, popping and snapping until it fit the lock. As I unlocked the doors and went inside, I didn't know what I was looking for, but the smell of gully herbs and a charred biker's helmet in the back room quickly became the first clues I needed. I walked over to see a complex series of circles, line work, symbols, a charred biker's helmet, and remnants of burnt gully herbs burned all in a large metal bin. I looked up and saw a bowl taped over the smoke detector above, a nifty college trick I'd seen boys pull in their dorm when they wanted to grill inside. Oh boy, I muttered at once, realizing what had happened here. Tony was responsible for Nick's murder, and I knew exactly how he did it. This was the summoning ritual for Biker Joe, and I'll get to him in a minute. Gully herbs only grow in Eureka Springs. They're a special plant that require our mystic spring water to thrive. They glow yellow under a full moon, and are said to be linked to the afterlife. They're used by local witches for any spiritual work they need to do. The biker's helmet and these symbols pointed to what spirit Tony had summoned. I'm guessing he found the ritual in some witch's book in a library somewhere, fiddled around with something he didn't know what he was messing with. You see, Biker Joe died here about 40 years ago. He was dating a witch in town named Mascherana, just before he died. In town, Joe led a small gang of bikers, and they stayed pretty local. He never really caused any trouble, but one day one of his bikers, his number two-in-command, Lucky Luke, he goes and he makes a move on Machirana. She becomes taken with Lucky Luke, and the two conspire to leave Eureka Springs. But they knew Biker Joe wouldn't take well to that, so they messed with his bike, cursed the brakes so they wouldn't work when he needed them most. Well, one night he was riding during a storm on his way over to Lucky Luke's home, The affair had been snitched upon by Joe's third-in-command, Boston Billy. Furious, Joe grabbed a gun and took off in the rain, but as you're well aware of the topography around here, Eureka has lots of steep hills and sharp curves, the blessings of being a mountain village. When Joe was going around one curve in particular, that's when the curse kicked in. He had been charging forward with a rageful speed, and with no brakes, he went over the side of a mountain, down into a valley and died when he hit a large tree. Luke and Mascheron were successful in their plot, but it wasn't enough to save them, for you see Joe entered the afterlife furious, and with enough energy, he became a vengeful spirit, seeking to harm those that broke his heart and his body. He reappeared before Luke and his former gal a few nights later, killing both of them mercilessly. Ever since, people in Eureka have occasionally summoned him for vengeance. And if you have the right ritual, he'll show up and kill whoever you need, but here's the trick. Your cause must be justified, at least in his eyes, or there's consequences. Panicking, I ran out of the museum and sped back over to Tony's house. He had to be warned about what was coming, even if he was a killer. By the time I arrived at Tony's house, I heard screaming inside. I kicked open the front door, something I'd later regret when I tried to jog later that night, and there was Tony backed into his dining room corner. Standing before him in a green mystical light was Biker Joe. Some leather, some bone, some fat, and half a face under a spiked helmet. Tony begged me to save him, but the look biker Joe gave me when he turned my way assured me I didn't need to get involved in this family drama anymore. Tony demanded to know what the spirit was doing back. Joe didn't answer, so I spoke up. I informed Tony he'd misled the spirit. He sought Nick's death because he was convinced Nick killed Taya, but Taya was studying up in Springfield alive and well, and since Nick didn't actually deserve to die, Joe was here to take vengeance for being misled in his anger. This was just a big case of stink all around. An angry man murdered his daughter's boyfriend under false pretenses, and now he was going to die. Tony now turned for my explanation and pleaded his case before Biker Joe, the judge, jury, and executioner standing before him. He said Nick was a monster, and killing a monster wasn't actually a crime. It's just a vampire, he kept saying. But Joe slowly put a finger to his lips, and Tony got real quiet. Biker Joe explained that he discovered Nick to be more than just a murderous vampire. He was also a son, and soon to be a husband, and it turns out, not so much with the murder. The real monster here wasn't the floating specter or the dead vampire, but Tony. With that, Biker Joe pulled out a wooden stake and drove it through Tony's chest, pinning him to what I'm guessing was the stud in the wall. Drywall wouldn't have held him up like that. And as Tony sputtered and wheezed, he made eye contact with me one final time. I just shook my head. I wasn't going to cross a specter for him. If I'd beaten Biker Joe here, I intended to warn Tony about what was coming, but now that the ghost was here, I was out. So I did just that. I walked out, got in my car, drove to the newsroom. Boss would want me covering the biscuit eating contest that was due to start in the next half hour. I would try to forget about everything I'd seen and learned this morning, but somehow I knew all the revving bikers and leather-clad men and women would just keep reminding me of Biker Joe and what he was capable of. The real lesson to take away from today is this. Not all monsters are monsters. Sometimes the real monsters are just ordinary people. And when they victimize a member of the supernatural community in my town, I'll be there to get to the bottom of it. As I predicted, Arkansas's ranger Beth Forbes showed up disguised as an Arkansas state trooper and took over the murder case of Nick and Tony. I filled her in on everything I'd learned and she thanked me. Now all that was left was cleanup. Sheriff never seemed to mind when this trooper showed up to take over a specific murder investigation. Less work for him, and he never asked questions. Even if he wasn't entirely aware of the supernatural community in town, he was aware enough to know when not to ask questions. As for cleanup, that's Beth's job. My job is to now photograph bikers scarfing biscuits with milk. Or beer. Another ghost murder solved, another day in Eureka Springs. Typical for our mountain village. Want to know more? Stay tuned. Background music for the Ozark Whispers podcast was provided by Kevin McLeod. Check out his stuff over at incompetech.com. Sound effects were provided by the following people CDRK, Percy Duke, Villa Pueros, and The Shaggy Freak. The Ozark Whispers podcast theme was produced by Matt Friend.